0: Hello. My guest today, once declared of President Obama, proximity to power has an unsurprising ability to mutate a politician's spinal cord into bright yellow jelly. Well, no such jellification is likely to emerge in the next 45 minutes as I talk to the journalist, novelist and activist Tariq Ali. Tariq was born in British India in 1943 and came to prominence in the 60s as one of the most powerful voices in Britain to voice opposition to the US-directed Vietnam War.
1: There was this general, suffused consciousness that the Vietnamese have done it, and if they can do it against such a powerful enemy, surely we can do it against ours.
0: Over the years, Tariq has written numerous books on politics, completed the Islam Quintet sequence of novels, written plays and screenplays, and lent his name to a range of causes, from opposition to the Iraq War to Brexit. Perhaps more than that, he's become, despite himself, an icon, a go-to shorthand to express an idea about radicalism in a context that encompasses the histories of Britain, the former empire, and the international left. Tarek, we're going to have plenty of time to discuss where your own politics stand right now, but first and foremost, what is the political moment that all of us are in? How would you define it?
1: I think we're in a period of transition, very similar to the period that opened up after the restoration in Britain in the 17th century, after the defeat of Napoleon in Europe, at the tail end of the French Revolution. In other words, we're in a counter-revolutionary period. At the same time, Technology is reached such a level that the future direction of the traditional enemy capitalism is not as predictable as it used to be. But as far as the left are concerned, we are living through a period of defeat.
0: I'm reminded of the uh, Italian Marxist thinker Antonio Gramsci, who, when thinking about transition, said that at a time when the old is gone but the new cannot yet be born, a variety of morbid symptoms appear. He was talking about the 1920s, of course. Are we in a similarly morbid sort of age? Very accurate.
1: I think we are in a similar age. There is a great deal of confusion both within the intelligentsias of different parts of the world and even more so and more importantly so amongst the people, the citizens.
0: What would you say are one or two specific manifestations of that morbidity, if we want to put it that way? Well, the
1: election of Trump is the obvious one. I mean, here you have a celebrity politician whose record in politics is virtually nil Uh, who says the most outrageous things, who accuses all his opponents of being liars, and who is now running the world's largest country, the world's only imperial power. And this is a symptom of despair, unease, confusion. People were taken in by his own untruths during the election campaign and said, dump the two major parties and their establishment, and let's try this guy out in a different form. Macron in France represents, not in the same way, but a very similar phenomenon. A break with the old, but going for individuals rather than political parties. Does that break start in 2008? Is the great financial crisis the turning point? I think there's no doubt about that. I think prior to 2008, the politicians, the bankers... And many of the ideologues thought that they'd pulled it off, that all was safe, that financial capital could go on endlessly as it was. One or two left-wing economists like Robert Brenner at UCLA and others said this is not going to happen. There is a huge crisis brewing. There's a bubble. And that crash, I think, broke the confidence of large numbers of citizens in the Western world with... The way capital was organized and the way in which it was being managed and led both by bankers and by politicians. And that has created new openings, which the left has partially taken or tried to take advantage of, but effectively in countries like the United States, etc., it's the right who's benefited, with the somewhat strange exception of Britain, where, you know... We were all taken by surprise when Jeremy Corbyn was elected leader of the Labour Party because this is against the grain of what's happening in many other countries. So, I want to use that as a as a
0: placeholder and a teaser, even because we will come back to the present moment in a little while. But I want first to talk about the long durée and the way that things have changed over decades. Now, you yourself were born in one thousand, nine hundred and forty-three in Lahore, which was then in India, now of course in Pakistan. Your parents were both progressives, politically active, and. I'd like you to, if you would, to read for us a short passage from your autobiography, Street Fighter Years, about something that happened when you were ten years old.
1: My mother wept on the day that Stalin died. It was outside Faisaldeen's, the chemists along the lower mall in Lahore. We'd been shopping, and she must have caught a glimpse of the headlines in the evening papers. I was waiting for her in the car. When she got in, her face was drawn and tense... At first she did not say anything. She did not cry aloud or uncontrollably. I just saw a few tears trickling down her face. She saw that I was worried and explained in a quiet voice, Stalin's dead. I was upset, but more for her sake than the dead Stalin. I remember feeling that perhaps I too should cry, but I found myself unable to do so. My mother was 27 years old at the time. She'd been an active communist and had joined the party in 1943, the year that I was born. My grandmother, whose sympathies lay elsewhere, had nonetheless knitted me a white sweater with a red hammer and sickle. My mother and large numbers of communists elsewhere in the world wept when they heard of Stalin's death. Why did they cry? There is no single answer to this question, nor could there be. But whatever the reasons, it was surely not because they thought that the World Revolution would now be leaderless or that there was nobody capable of presiding over the next set of purges. It was because Stalinism had organised itself as a religion, albeit a primitive one, with its special symbols and a living God.
0: Tarek, this moment clearly stuck with you, why was it so important? Why does it remain so memorable?
1: Because I had never seen my mother out of control like that about something not to do with, you know, a a death in the family or things like that. So I was completely taken aback. And while I knew that both my parents were communists, Stalinists, our house was full of his volumes and, uh, of course, as we now know, written by others, his images, he was an icon for the communist movement. And it was the same all over the world Especially so, I would argue, in the subcontinent, which has this relationship, the Guru-Shagir, the pupil-master relationship, which goes very deep. And Stalin was the great guru of uh, Indian communism, and to a certain extent still is from, you know, given what's left of it. But uh, that struck me as something unusual. And I, you know, I never forgot it. Later on, of course, uh, when I grew up and was at university, I teased her a great deal about it, especially after the 20th Party Conference, during which Nikita Khrushchev denounced Stalin and the crimes, and suddenly all his images and books in our house were relegated to the attic. So I said, oh, this is the new line now is it we can't even talk about him in Stalingrad is Volgograd. But communism was clearly not the only
0: shaping factor in your household. You also learnt at that time a great deal about traditional Indian literature, about classical music and so forth. How important was that to shaping you?
1: Our household was very strange, in the sense that my parents both belonged to the same landed family, which was deeply reactionary on almost every level. So in terms of social existence, it was you know, one met members of the family occasionally, but our house was packed with poets and uh, singers and intellectuals and writers, and it was always that side of social life that I enjoyed greatly. Were there any particular writers or artists who stand out even now as being in the house? Well, certainly, Fez Ahmed Fez, one of the great poets of the subcontinent, Sip de Hassan, Sajjad Zaheer, many other literary critics, debating, arguing, and for a young person growing up in that milieu, you know, you were completely captured by it even though you didn't understand everything they were saying. And for me, that was, that was extremely important. And it, there was nothing to compare with a Mushaira, a poetry reading that started at eight in the evening and went on till two in the morning, by which time the poets were exchanging extensitivity Contemporary poetry in competing with each other, right-wing poets, left-wing poets, middle-of-the-road poets, really nice period to be growing up in.
0: Your family was both very well connected, as you said, and landed, but also radical. And both of those must have affected the way in which you developed as a political person. How much was each of those sides important in terms of deciding
1: how far you could push, how far you could go in the Pakistan of the 1950s? In Pakistan, interestingly enough... The left, which was very weak compared to India in terms of size of communist party, which was banned rapidly, had one big advantage, which is that a group of leftists, including Faiz Ahmed Faiz, including my father, had set up, knowing this new country was going to come into being, a chain of newspapers called Progressive Papers Limited, which produced an English language daily, Pakistan Times, an Urdu daily, Imros, an uh, Urdu literary weekly. Day and night. These newspapers were read everywhere and they were not official Communist Party papers at all, very cleverly edited, but they became fairly uh, dominant. And so going in and out of the newspaper offices, uh, talking to journalists, meeting people, People coming to our home from all parts of the world, China, Russia, Egypt, India, was a a great experience uh, for me and uh, I think had a big part in my own formation. You were also, of course, the first
0: generation of children then young men and women growing up after Partition. Now, you've written about that and how people you know were affected by it, and I'm thinking actually about uh, an artist, the painter Tasadouk Sahel, who you transform into a character called Plato in the final volume of your set of novels, The Islam Quintet. I wonder if you might read us a passage relating to his experience in 1947, the year of Partition.
1: One day he told us how he had escaped from the 1947 pogroms in East Punjab and fled to Lahore. He was in his last year of school when news reached Ludhiana that all of the 200 or so Muslims in his village, including his parents and three younger sisters, as well as aunts and uncles and cousins, had all been taken to the local mosque and set on fire. There wasn't a single survivor. A kindly Sikh maths teacher who had befriended Plato hugged him and wept. The same man took him to the center of town, where a convoy of buses was being readied to ferry Muslims across to the other side of the partitioned subcontinent. Plato was dazed, unable to register the fact that he had lost everyone. He was put on a bus that contained mainly women and children. His old teacher explained the circumstances and pleaded with a woman to look after his pupil. She did. The two buses in front of us were stopped by six, and I saw the men lined up and killed in the most brutal fashion. Some of them were on their knees, pleading for mercy, kissing the feet of those about to massacre them. I thought they would kill us too, saving the women to be raped and slaughtered afterwards. But they were interrupted by a military patrol led by British officers. That in itself was rare, but that's how we survived.
0: I wonder, why did you choose the name Plato to give to this character in this particular novel?
1: Well, you know, in the subcontinent, certainly in the northern parts of it, uh, Aflatun, which is the Arabic word name for Plato, Aflatun means someone who's talkative, inquisitive, talks too much, asks too many questions... in a sort of contempt for this sort of behavior by some Punjabis. So when someone's talking too much, you say, oh, stop it, Aflatun, don't become Aflatunish uh, in Punjabi. So I thought this, I, you know, it was based on a painter I knew and who I've written about in the London Review of Books recently. This is Tassadok the Dasattuk Suhail. And he was not like that in real life at all. But I, you know, did a composite with various other people who'd had similar stories to tell. And I just like the name, and also to keep it as far as possible from his real name. That's the reason.
0: Partition is in the story, as it is in so many books on the post-colonial subcontinent, as a sort of year zero or moment zero. I wonder how, as you grew up, you felt about partition. I mean, your grandfather, Sir Sikandar Hyatt Khan, was actually leader of an important Muslim Unionist party. He was
1: secularist. He was very anti-partition. Was that your sense, too, as you came of age? Well, I never saw him, because he died at a very young age, a year before I was born. He was 49 years old. The party he led, the Unionist Party was a conservative force allied to the British and consisting essentially of Muslim, Sikh and Hindu landlords and aristos who controlled the peasantry firmly enough to be trusted. But it was quite a successful party electorally. The Sikandar Jinnah Pact, signed with the leader of the Muslim League... That's uh, Mohammed Ali Jinnah. Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the uh, you know, big leader of the Muslim League who created Pakistan, was pact to collaborate, but no key decision had been taken on partition uh, by that time. And many, many people have said that had my grandfather lived, at the very least, the Punjab wouldn't have been divided. He, he said, over my dead body.
0: And how did you feel, say, you know, in your teenage years, clearly partition was a fait accompli by that stage, but did you feel uh, a breach, a loss, a country that you wouldn't know just across the border, because Punjab itself, of course, specifically was divided, or was it really past history already by that stage?
1: I can't remember it. I remember uh, an old family retainer taking me to a event to welcome Jinnah. We were on the road waving Pakistan flags, and uh, she said, "Shout Pakistan's in the which I did. Following her, long live Pakistan. Long live Pakistan. <laughs> I think it's one of the few occasions on which I have shouted that. But in any event, it didn't mean much to me. No one suffered. Our family was all in Pakistan. There were no brutalities against us. We were the lucky ones. It's the refugees who, from the other side who, who suffered. But partition was constantly talked about. And it was talked about by people, my parents, sitting in the car, going from point A to point B in Lahore. As you'd pass a certain house, they would say, remember X, a Hindu name, or Y, a Sikh name, they lived here. They felt it very seriously because the bulk of their friends were Hindus and Sikhs. So suddenly, all the progressive Hindus and Sikhs had were taken away and went and lived in India. and It was very difficult to cross borders uh, soon afterwards. So that generation really felt it uh, very deeply.
0: Did you have any perception or memory of the British? I mean, clearly they would have left formally when you were four years old, when you were pretty young. Did any trace remain in the Lahore that you grew up in, or was that yet another set of historical actors who had long since passed.
1: No, the British were very much there in their new guise as Pakistani civil servants and Pakistani military officers. in significant
0: numbers enough to notice them.
1: Yeah, but what I'm trying to say, actually, Rana, is that even after they had all gone, uh, they were mimicked endlessly. You know, the routine, the rules of the army mess, the way civil servants behaved, the way they went to clubs, etc. So you mean, sorry, the Pakistan elite class is essentially mimicking the British even after independence? Yeah, and in India too, to a a certain extent. You felt this very strongly, the way they spoke to each other, uh, the way they talked in in, uh, uh, Lahore, where I lived the attitude of the Punjabi elite, civil service and military elite to the Bengalis was totally colonial.
0: Meaning those who became Bangladesh 15 years later.
1: Yeah. It was a colonial attitude, taking on all the prejudices of the British. Mentioning the British reminds me of something that isn't always well
0: known about you, which is that while you're a renowned critic of empire and its structures, you're quite a fan of some of the writers of empire, Kipling... E. M. Forster.
1: I mean, why Kipling in particular? I love his poems and some of his short stories uh, as well. I think he was, you know, one doesn't have to agree with a writer politically to appreciate his gifts and uh, talents. Is, is there a particular poem? Do you perhaps have one from memory? I used to, but my memory is not uh, what it was. I mean, the most moving one is after he lost his son in the First World War. His son's eyesight was very weak, and Kipling had used rank. He was a cousin of Stanley Baldwin and very well connected to get his son onto the battlefield. And then his son died, and he discovered his, they discovered his spectacles lying next to him. He couldn't see. And Kipling wrote something like this, and if they ask how come our children died, tell them it was because their fathers lied. And uh, Bertolt Brecht, the great German playwright, loved Kipling's songs as well and, you know, uh, bowlerized some of them for the songs he wrote in um, in German. So, no, and also, you know, the most important thing about Kipling is I think he's the only English writer writing in India, about India, who captures the... Voices of the ordinary Tommies, the soldiers, the rank and file of the British Empire, largely ignored by most other writers, certainly by Forster.
0: In the novel that we've just read a little bit from, your character, the, the painter Plato, argues that art can transform social and political setbacks into victories, but the narrator of the novel disagrees quite strongly with that. He says, art may console, but quotes, the sharks still control the oceans. Is that your voice there?
1: That is my voice. And basically, what I'm telling the painter and many others, novelists, poets, etc., don't think that anything we do on its own can transform the world. That's not how it happens.
0: Is that why the narrative of politics has perhaps always gripped you more, and perhaps, you know, particularly the first big narrative you engaged with, which was the narrative of Vietnam?
1: Always, and even before Vietnam, I remember when I was at school. Still reading in the newspapers a report that a African American unemployed person had been sentenced to death for stealing a dollar, and we were what, fourteen or fifteen? We, me and my friends and me. Just couldn't believe that. So we organized our first demonstration, marched to the US consulate to protest. And I can still see the face of this hard Lutheran. Uh, American, uh, saying give me your names, I'm going to report you to your principal. Not a word saying this is tragic, it's, uh, you know trying to explain to us as, as kids why this is happening because he was just offended that in a country which they felt they controlled uh, this was going on. So um, politics has been the most important thing in my life and still is actually. It, it That never went away. <laughs>
0: You're listening to Free Thinking with me, Ron Amitter. My guest today is the writer and activist Tarek Ali. And if you don't want to miss an episode, you can sign up for the Arts and Ideas podcast, wherever you find your podcasts, or every episode is on the Free Thinking programme website, including interviews with Slavoj Žižek, Zadie Smith and Claudia Rankin, amongst others. Now, Tariq, you came to Britain to study in the 1960s, and amongst many things that clicked with you was a little left-wing journal called New Left Review, which in your autobiography you describe as being full of incredibly boring articles. And yet within a couple of years you were actually very much involved with the editorial of that publication, which I have to say is still going very strong, well-circulated and widely read in political science circles. Why was that journal such an important intellectual experience for you?
1: A, because it was unattached. It did not belong to any uh, party, and which made me trust it more than many of the other journals I read that were attached to political formations. And I'd first read the New Left Review when my parents had brought it back to Lahore after a trip to Europe, in which there was a discussion on the divisions inside the Italian Communist Party. And that struck me. I said, my God, there are actually divisions and open discussions inside a communist party. I hope they learn about this in the subcontinent. And I was gripped by that discussion. So one of the first things I did was to uh, pick it up when I got to Oxford and uh, read it regularly.
0: Was this part of an engagement with the British intellectual left, more broadly speaking, at this time? This was the time when. Historians like E.P. Thompson and Eric Hobsbawm were teaching, they were marching, they had an agenda that went well beyond the archive and the seminar room, although, of course, it started there. Was that an inspiring scene for you at all?
1: Yes, though the people in the New Left Review I was attracted to, whose writings um, had a big impact on me in the years that followed, were Perry Anderson, whose debate with Edward Thompson on the origins of capital and the formation of the British ruling class is still one of the key text historical texts. Uh, Robin Blackburn, who had written about the Cuban Revolution and the period that existed uh, before it, Peter Wallen's writings on the new wave in France, the French directors and the Italian directors. And all that brought me to a completely um, new place, really, something I would never have uh, encountered in Pakistan except accidentally. And, of course, the fact that both the old new left of Edward Thompson and Stuart Hall... And the new, new left were very political people. They might disagree with each other, but on the broad issues of the day, colonial wars that were still being fought, Vietnam, nuclear weapons, there were vigorous debates and often, uh, if not always, uh, agreement. But that side of being scholar activists appealed to me a great deal. Well, the moment that brought you to British consciousness, more broadly speaking, brought you into the public sphere,
0: and actually international prominence as well, was that moment of the Vietnam War. Now, you may remember you gave an interview before one of the protests against the Vietnam War in London in 1968.
2: I hear that the London Times has got more people covering this demonstration than they had covering World War Two, and I find this very ominous. But if the police maintain their side of the bargain and leave the marchers well alone and don't try and divide the march up into small groups because marchers will regard this as a provocation I'm, I hope that the march will go off without any incidents. I can assure you that as one of the organizers of this march we have made our position absolutely clear we want it to be a very very peaceful march through uh, th- uh, through central London ending up in Hyde Park with a rally. The one problem that is being suggested is a faction that's been called the Maoists. Yes well you know they, they want to go off to Grosvenor Square um, we've Try to argue with them politically and say that it's incorrect, but that's about all we can do. I think they're completely wrong, and we are going to ask marchers on our march not to go to Grosvenor Square because what will ensue there will be a completely meaningless punch-up.
0: Why, when you were living in the UK at the time, was the Vietnam War such a focus of protest? I understand, of course, in the United States, in Australia, in South Korea, young men were being drafted. It was a question of life or death. Although the Wilson government in Britain did support rhetorically the the Vietnam War and President Johnson, they never sent any troops to actually fight there. So why in Britain did it catch on so much as an issue?
1: Look, they didn't send troops, which, in retrospect, we can applaud, given what followed.
0: Labour D- did you not applaud it at the time?
1: I mean, no, it was a, we, it was politically we, difficult for decision. us. For us, the key thing was the following: Labour had been elected after thirteen years of Tory rule. There was a great deal of excitement. I had campaigned and canvassed for the Labour Party, been to hear Wilson speaking as a leader of the opposition at huge rallies, where he was very inspirational, I must say. And Wilson had written himself and said in Parliament that we will never support the escapades in Southeast Asia in which the United States are involved. So a very clear indication was given to the whole country that the new Labour government would not support any American adventures in wars. And for us that was key. So the troops was for us a secondary issue. We wanted Wilson to stop supporting the Americans. And look, it wasn't just rhetorical support. Lots of uh, SAS-type people, British intelligence, British intelligence's friends in the BBC were heavily involved in propagandising or even going to Vietnam to look at what was going on. This was kept quiet, but it's now well known. So they did collaborate, and we wanted to break that collaboration, as did about 100 Labour members of Parliament too. So we didn't feel we were on our our own. So at that time, that was the anger. We've got a new Labour government which promised A, B, C, D and E, both domestically and in the realm of foreign policy, and they're not doing it.
0: But no sense of the difficulty of Wilson's position, he was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, he had to have some sort of relationship with the United States. The key thing for him surely was young men not being picked up and sent off to be killed in Southeast Asia. That he achieved.
1: Well, I think that it wasn't just Wilson. If you look at that war, not a single European country sent troops. It wasn't just Britain... France certainly didn't, because de Gaulle was opposed with The Germans... They'd so, had their own Vietnam War, of well, course. Well, they'd been defeated already by the Vietnamese. The Germans, who were American stooges, if any country was didn't do it because of the repercussions with the East. It was a very different situation and the Soviet Union was a huge power, as was China, a developing power and the Europeans didn't want to get involved in that. But we felt that in Britain the Labour Party and the trade unions should have been strongly opposed to that war and they would have been able to play a much larger role on the global stage. That was our feeling. Of course after Blair, anything seemed nice in the past, you know, let's face it. So you compare Wilson to Blair, and of course he's an angel, Wilson is, that is. But uh, we were talking about those times when expectations were higher.
0: And you actually managed to visit North Vietnam yourself and see directly what the effects of the war was on the
1: Vietnamese people. That was the most formative event in my life. Bertrand Russell and Jean-Paul Sartre, two of europe's great philosophers had called for the existence of a war crimes tribunal accusing the americans of committing war crimes in vietnam this was denounced in virtually the entire media we went as um, observers and inspectors and i spent 6 weeks in north vietnam during the bombing raids and it was an eye-opening experience. I mean, whether we returned dead or alive was an open question, you know, uh, uh, from there. But seeing the suffering of the people, seeing bombed hospitals, bombed churches, just the scale of it was horrific. Seeing the use of chemical weapons against the Vietnamese, the use of bombs which were given names like the Guava bomb and the Pineapple bomb, which stayed on the ground till a kid came and picked one up in it exploded, leaving Mongolia. So it was the targeting of civilians. Horrific. Absolutely horrific. And the tribunal, you know, unsurprisingly found the Americans guilty, was attacked, denounced, and a few months later the My Lai massacre came to uh, light. And uh, this is where a,
0: a very inexperienced young uh, American Lieutenant William Kelly authorized uh, the massacre of a huge number of civilians in a small village.
1: Yeah. Which even Max Hastings today calls one of the most brutal massacres uh, in in recent times, and compares it to Nazi atrocities. We witnessed all this, and you know, after that, it could it, it just my life was not the same. One became completely obsessed with seeing how we could help the Vietnamese. What could we do? I remember asking Pham Van Dong, the North Vietnamese Prime Minister, "Can't we bring international brigades like they did in Spain?" And he was, you know, very touched, came and hugged me and said, look, let me be blunt. It's a very moving sentiment, but this is not Spain. This is the most technological war that has been waged against a peasant nation like ours. And we don't want to waste Gators and fighters protecting our international brigades rather than fighting the Americans, meaning you'd be more of a problem.
0: You you look look cute, but you're not much good with a rifle. But you would have fought for
1: the NLF if they'd given you the chance? Without any doubt at all. Absolutely no doubt. I mean, you know, even the British Consul General in Hanoi, who we met, a very decent guy from the Foreign Office, we had tea with him, those of us with British nationality, and he said when he hears the bombing, he said it reminds me of the Blitz, and I honestly feel like rushing up to the roof of the consulate and letting go of them.
0: But would your sympathy in supporting actively the NLF have been because of your disgust with the brutality of the American war against a very poor people without similar levels of technology to fight back? Or would it have been because the cause itself of Vietnamese nationalism was one that appealed to you?
1: Both. The cause of the Vietnamese appeal, they had virtually won that war in 1945, The British had sent in colonial troops under General Gracie and the Indian Army to try and hold the country while the French came back. The Americans had taken over from the French. So ideologically, it was a continuation of colonial empire building instead of using the end of the war to come out of these countries, they went in again. So we were, my generation, for a large part were, were for fighting with the Vietnamese.
0: But one of the things we know now not least from Vietnamese archives which are open up to, opened up to historians is that the NLF were nationalists but they were also pretty hardcore revolutionaries. They carried out purges against groups within their own country. Many villagers were also actually rounded up in places by the NLF and uh, in North Vietnam after reunification in 1975. It's not been a regime that's been terribly careful of individual human rights. Does that give you any
1: uneasiness? No, it doesn't, because at that time, the key thing was to try and defeat the United States. So the actual character... Of the regime. I mean, for heaven's sake, which government in those days was pristine pure? I mean, but there's a difference the,
0: between pristine pure and, say, taking democratic people into re education. But
1: the, the so called democratic countries were waging this war. And so they weren't killing their own citizens. They, they killed some at Kent State, but they were certainly wiping That's out... That's four
0: students who were shot mm-hmm. by the National Guard and American university.
1: Yeah, but uh, they, they were certainly destroying other parts of the world, as they still are. So, you know, I, I was uh, opposed to the Iraq war, despite Saddam Hussein. In Vietnam, it was different, because the party was a communist party, a radical party, a secular formation, uh, fighting a war not just to get the Americans out, but to transform the, the country itself. But also one careless of individual human rights. Yes, one careless of individual human rights, which, by the way, were not talked about too much at the time. Should they have
0: been talked about more? I mean, again, it's the question of the enemy's enemy. Does that make that their friend?
1: No, but you have to take sides. I mean, people who went and fought in Spain did so on the Republican side, though the uh, elements within the Republican side committed atrocities against other people on a much, much larger scale than anything that happened in Vietnam. I'm aware of what happened in Vietnam. I became aware later. It didn't change my mind on that war at all and my own sympathies. The same period
0: was also a period when the Chinese Revolution under Chairman Mao was really becoming you know, iconic, one might say, and, of course, that was the era of the Cultural Revolution as well. Uh, even John Lennon sang about it, actually, in the song Revolution, which I think you critiqued in one of your uh, journals. What were your thoughts about China
1: at that time? Growing up in Asia, as I was, my first memory of going to a political event was the May Day meeting in Lahore organized by trade unions and the left in 1949 when news of the Chinese armies edging their way. I mean, the main army had reached Beijing, but others were edging their way to taking over the whole country, and the excitement was palpable, you know. And the chants of the crowd were we will take the Chinese Road Brothers. This was our revolution. The Russian Revolution, yes, but it wasn't the Europeans' revolution. China was our revolution. And if this country was transformed, as they were promising to do, it would have an amazing impact on South Asia, we felt, too. And so it was a very popular revolution And the one that has lasted the longest. I mean, what will happen in China is one of the most interesting questions of the 21st century. So, you know, we can discuss that some other time. But in terms of the Chinese Revolution, I think the fact that it took them, you know, virtually 15, 16 years to achieve that meant that it had a completely different relationship to the peasants on whom they had to depend in order to survive after they were expelled from the cities in the Russian Revolution. So it was very different, the social basis of the revolution, which also explains the attitude of the leaders uh, in the early years, certainly in the
0: 50s. Well, certainly in the early years, in the 50s and 60s, China felt very isolated because it was not diplomatically recognised by the United States. But it also ended up making what even the Communist Party of China has called historic errors. This is the Great Leap Forward that killed, you know, 20 million plus people in a famine and the Cultural Revolution, which ended up smashing very large parts of China's heritage, as well as destroying the party from uh, from within. I mean, is this a record which in the end, do you think, can be sort of explained away, or does it in the end invalidate that revolution?
1: I don't think it invalidates that revolution. I think some of the things that happened were appalling. Others were, to be perfectly frank, unintended consequences of bad policies, which the Chinese are not the only ones guilty of on a global scale, horrific though they may have been. But I think when all is said and done, the revolution created... A new layer of people who were educated, who developed very rapidly, the universal education, literacy, the creation of universities, without which it isn't completely possible to understand its successes today. They had a cadre there. Uh, People were much, much better educated than, for instance, in India. And I think one of the differences between China and India is that the revolution gave the Chinese state a base from which it could take a real great leap forward. How it will end, we will see. But that still hasn't happened in India.
0: Literacy rates in general, I think, in India are around 75% much lower for women in China. They're around 95%, and that has to do with legacy, of course. Let's talk a little, if we may, about characters you've written about recently who have been very inspiring to not just the Chinese, but Russians and other revolutionaries. And those are the what you might call the Holy Trinity, unholy trinity, I don't know, of Lenin, Trotsky and Stalin. Now, your take on these revolutionary thinkers I find very interesting because you make a clear case, it seems to me, that Lenin and Trotsky are theoretical thinkers of great value, of great suppleness, and then essentially their legacy is destroyed by the virus of Stalinism, which basically invalidates a great deal of what they, they laid out. Is that a fair assessment of the difference between them as theorists and as activists?
1: I think it is. I think a river of blood separated Bolshevism from Stalinism in a very literal sense. Meaning what the purge and the... Um... Meaning the purge of the Communist Party. of the Central Committee that made the revolution, 90% of them were killed as traitors or Japanese or German agents. And this destruction of the party itself, I think the Soviet Union suffered a great deal. People kept quiet, as Khrushchev explained in, in 1956. I think Lenin was a particularly gifted thinker. No one doubts that, even his enemies And had he lived five years longer, who knows what road the Russian Revolution uh, might have taken?
0: Well, at least some historians, drawing particularly on archival materials that have been available since the the early 90s in in Moscow, would make a different case. They'd say supposing Lenin had lived five years, ten years longer, actually the seeds of Stalinism are visible in the way that he thought about power. Because Lenin was many things, but as you point out, not disapprovingly, He wasn't a liberal. He was someone in the end who did see a use for terror. He saw that violence, in his view, could be a transformative force that was sometimes necessary to transform society. And that came in part from late 19th century Russian traditions. Trotsky shared many of those views as well. So, in a sense, isn't it a continuity rather than a change in terms of Stalin? Stalin's methods and scale may have been different, but actually he shared many of the understandings and prejudices about power and about the nature of collective power that Lenin and Trotsky had also.
1: There were elements of continuity and discontinuity today, American historians in particular and their British followers just stressed the continuities, but there were important discontinuities as well. And I think the decisive event in the Soviet Union after the revolution was the three-year civil war which was brutal and which destroyed literally up to 70% of the workers who had participated in the revolution so one can't ignore all these things and this was a war carried out not just by Czarist remnants but by the West, the Entente powers the Americans, the British, the French all these countries that had fought in the First World War which wanted to punish this country for having withdrawn from the war so It's a very complicated and complex history, but I would say that Lenin, during the Civil War, fought it like Cromwell fought the Civil War in Britain, like Lincoln fought the Civil War in the United States, I mean the destruction of Atlanta, Uh, and like the French fought their Civil Wars after the French Revolution. This is linked to every major revolution that has taken place uh, in the Western world. I think to understand Lenin, you have to study the writings, the essays he wrote in the last two, two and a half years of his life. It's as if crippled by a stroke, but his brain completely functioning. He saw what was going on and said, ah, screamed, a scream of rage. How, why, where have we reached this? And he writes time and time again, we haven't succeeded in our principal task at home, which is to destroy the bureaucracy, to create new forms of rule. And not only have we not destroyed the bureaucracy, but I notice many Bolsheviks have become part of it. So he knew what was going on. And oh, to what extent he would have been able to change things, I don't know. But I think that the purges would not have taken place. And I think that the industrialization would have been much better controlled. And possibly even the NEP would have gone on for a longer period. This That's is the new, new economic policy, which the new basically introduced markets partly into Yes. Russia. So all this was there in his last writings, which is he is a very different figure, in my opinion, from those that uh, followed him.
0: When we started, Tariq, I asked you about the political moment all of us are in, and we said maybe we're in that Gramscian style of morbid age of transition between the old and the new. So where do you see yourself and your role in this landscape now? What needs to be said and done right now?
1: Well, a lot needs to be said, but here I have to say two things. One is that the transformation of the mainstream media into essentially a pillar of state state policies carried out by different political parties is quite horrific if you compare it to the 50s, 60s, 70s, and the coverage of world politics is now incredibly biased and ex- incredibly narrow, much less space for diversity, apart from sexual or diversity, race diversity. Actual political diversity is not encouraged, and this was uh, true, you know, in the 90s as well. You saw the way in which things were moving. So that is very depressing. So it's not as easy as it used to be to say what one wants to say in public.
2: Does that
0: explain your uh, decision, which in your part of the left perhaps was relatively unusual, to support the Brexit vote uh, in 2016? Because many on the left would argue that basically accepting Brexit would reduce the number of political choices have r- people have, certainly not increase them. That would be their view.
1: Look at what happened. UKIP virtually wiped out its leaders discredited the Labour Party getting the largest vote ever, apart from one other occasion, under Jeremy Corbyn. Possibly from many people who voted Remain, of course. Of course, that too. Yes, not just that. But all those who said Brexit means a turn to the right in Britain were wrong, and I predicted they would be wrong. Uh, Corbyn's victory, and he's not such a staunch supporter of Remain, it's hardly a secret... Um, was extremely important. So you have the Labour Party for the first time under the leadership of the, of the left and the Conservative Party badly split. I mean, what more could one ask for? On the level of Brexit itself, my own attitude was that using the European Union structures as a gold standard was completely misplaced. They had no wrong. Everything that was wrong was elsewhere. I think the European Union is in a state of an advanced crisis, both economically, its currency is in a disastrous uh, uh, crisis, and uh, the impositions on countries like Greece, etc., were horrific. I would probably have abstained. In fact, I did because I was in Brazil when the vote took place. But I would have voted for, had I been here, to punish them from what what they did to Greece. Had they not done that, I probably would have abstained because the difference between British and European capitalism hardly exists.
0: Even though Yanis Varoufakis and Alexis Tsipras and others um, were very much in favour of the UK staying? the actual Greeks who were on the, but uh, the, the
1: hard But Cyprus is end. a total disaster story, runner. He's a complete sellout. He slapped his own people in the face and rejected their own vote when they were giving him strength to take on the European Union. Varoufakis is different, but he imagines that, you know, we can change the EU, which quite honestly doesn't look like it at all, that anyone inside the EU can change it. It's basically run now by the German system.
0: So what's your prescription for now? I mean, is it the election of a government under Labour led by Jeremy Corbyn? Is that what you'd advocate?
1: Yeah, I would very strongly support Corbyn. I will vote for him. And basically what Jeremy Corbyn and other radical Social Democrats like him in the Labour Party are trying to do is nothing that dramatic, but revert to a form of social democracy which has been banned effectively by the neoliberal system for the last 25 years the renationalization of the railways uh, giving poor kids the right to go to university without having to pay any fees things that people have forgotten even existed and ultimately taking power away from the utilities i mean the entire system created by neoliberalism is in a state of crisis with the crash of this big pfi company you know just making money at the expense of taxpayers. So Corbyn is going to reverse that. Whether he could have done it if Britain was in Europe is another open question. I'm not 100% sure, but that is what he's promising. And were that to happen, I'm not saying it will. If it happens, it will certainly create more space for debate and discussion and moving forward in this country.
0: I wonder about the way that you link your long experience of uh, political work from an earlier period to now. And the thing that prompted that thought was your introduction to the new edition or the newest edition of your autobiography. I should say that the cover has a rather nice sort of Warhol-esque picture of John Lennon and Yoko Ono on it. And in your introduction, you said that your daughter had asked you not to use that picture on the grounds that, quotes it was a bit sad. I wondered... Yes, I can see... I can, listeners, uh, Tariq is now grimacing slightly and looking at the uh, the floor... I suppose really what I want to know is does the younger generation get it? Do they understand? Do you feel they should understand the continuities between what that picture represents from the 1960s and what's happening now?
1: Well, firstly, there's a new edition underway which doesn't have that on the cover. Let he says me, hastily. <laughs> let me make that clear. That picture was put it was on because they were wearing Red mold T-shirts, which was the magazine I was editing at the time. Uh, <clears throat> do they understand, well, look, why are we observing the 50th anniversary of 1968 this year? Obviously there is an interest, otherwise there wouldn't be such widespread... Um, celebrations or commemorations all over the world. I mean, I have invitations from 10 different countries to go and speak. So there is some interest in it. And even for the younger generation, I'm still asked often at, by school students, you know, what was it like? What did you do? What did you believe in? Because if you live in a world like the world in which we live today, Any glimmer of hope, however long, and 50 years is a long time, is something, meaning it was done before, what could we do? So uh, it it surprises me that there, there is this interest, but clearly there is. There's still plenty to do. There's still plenty to do. I mean, honestly, I would like to die with my boots on. Well, it seems
0: that the current political circumstances are ones where, at least if not dying, at least you'll have plenty of opportunities to get stuck in. That's all from me and my producer Zahid Warli today. Many thanks indeed to my guest today, Tariq Ali.